Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Southeast Asian countries in the spotlight. Foreign ministers from Southeast Asian nations, or ASEAN, have uh, gathered in Jakarta, Indonesia, to discuss regional affairs. Senior diplomats from China, the U.S., Russia, and other regional countries also took part. The theme for this year for ASEAN is ASEAN Matters, Epicentrum of Growth. At the opening plenary session, Indonesian Foreign Minister Retno Masudi emphasized the importance of ASEAN's unity and centrality to maintain regional peace and stability. China's senior diplomat, director of the Office of Foreign Affairs Commission of the CPC Central Committee, Wang Yi, attended the meetings, reaffirming China's support for ASEAN centrality and highlighting regional integration, common security and sustainable development. He also met with the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken the second time in a month. So what have been the key messages and takeaways? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined from Haikou, capital of China's southernmost province of Hainan, by Dr. Yang Yan, Director of Research Center of Oceans Law and Policy at the National Institute for South China Sea Studies, from North Carolina, the U.S., by Klaus Laris, Professor of History and International Affairs at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, from Shanghai by Niu Haibing, Director of the Institute for Foreign Policy Studies at Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, and from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, by Professor A. Sung Oh, Principal Advisor at the Pacific Research Center. The warmest welcome to all of you. And let me start from the region by Professor A, of course. Now, the theme of this year's Indonesia Chairmanship of ASEAN is ASEAN Matters, epicentrum of growth. What does that tell us about the aspirations of ASEAN and what are the main tasks the foreign ministers set down to tackle? Well, the, as the topic suggests, uh, ASEAN nowadays uh, facing two, shall we say, huge uh, challenges. Uh, the first one being the revitalization of uh, ASEAN's uh, economy as a whole. Even though ASEAN is uh, one of the world's uh, fastest uh, growing uh, region, but uh, because it has a huge uh, population, so sometimes uh, this sort of uh, growth uh, may not be enough in, in keeping up with uh, the paces of population growth in uh, Southeast Asia. So number one, to revitalize the economy, and number two, also to, to perhaps uh, re-centralize uh, regional security matters uh, onto ASEAN itself. ASEAN centrality has been paid uh, lip service uh, over the past, uh, shall we say, decade or two, but uh, with Indonesia leading the pack nowadays, uh, it's uh, perhaps time for ASEAN to reassert its centrality again. Thank you. Exactly what does ASEAN mean by ASEAN centrality and why do you say that it's been paid lip service, Professor A? For ASEAN to uh, reassert itself, uh, its centrality would uh, entail many of its uh, member states, uh, for example, they would have to uh, divert some of their national resources in order to strengthen their national defense they would have to play more proactive roles, such as piracy, such as uh, trafficking of uh, human beings and so on, 
would be able to tackle not only by the major powers of the world, but also by ASEAN countries itself. Mr. Neil, let me go to you. Do you think ASEAN centrality also faced the problem of uh, not really being implemented but being paid lip service? Uh, yes, I, I agree with you, uh, especially uh, in the background of the U.S. come back to the Indo-Pacific. It has established uh, many mini multilateral groups which focus on the regional security economic and other issues, uh, which this attract attention to the central role played by the ASEAN countries. And I think at this time, we have to pay more attention to the vision and demands uh, of the ASEAN countries about their own region's development priorities and mm. approaches to solve the problems. Mm. One of the uh, key outcomes of this meeting, or one of the major components of this foreign minister's meeting has been a meeting of the Commission of Southeast Asian Nuclear Weapon Free Zone when they held a meeting on Tuesday expressing the disappointment that the region is still not safe from nuclear weapons. Now China has expressed a willingness to sign a regional nuclear weapon free zone treaty, but not the other major nuclear power states. Mr. Niu, how important is that issue for ASEAN and what is China's consideration and what could be the consideration of other major nuclear powers not to express at least their willingness to sign up to the pact? Uh, it's a long-term goal for, for the region, for the ASEAN countries to establish a nuclear weapons-free zone. It will be one of the five uh, such kind of zones around the world. And at the current uh, stage, uh, there are many things changing, uh, especially uh, the conflict in the Ukraine. People talked about the nuclear weapons might be used in that uh, conflict. And also, the U.S. has transferred its uh, nuclear weapon technology to the regional countries around the Southeast Asia which gives the priority and pressure for the ASEAN countries to be talking about this uh, important issue. And China supports the goal of the ASEAN countries to establish uh, such kind of, of zones, which will be enhance the regional security uh, environment and the mutual uh, trust. So it's quite important for other nuclear states to follow this initiative mm. to give more stability to the region. Mr. Laris, let me go to you. Do you think it is possible that the United States would sign up to such a treaty or protocol anytime soon? Uh, probably not. It's doubtful. But the treaty was signed in 1995. It came into force in 1997. Now it's well or almost 30 years later and all nuclear powers, including China, have been rather slow in committing themselves to a nuclear zone in the Pacific, in the Asian countries. So I can't see that much progress will be made in the next few years. And there are all sorts of reasons but China has for expressed, that. sorry, as I just said, China has expressed its willingness to sign up on the protocol. Absolutely. So that is progress. But of course, you know, what did they do since 1997? Why didn't they commit themselves much earlier to that? And the question can also be asked, what about the other nuclear powers? Why is there so much hesitancy to sign up to such a treaty? Perhaps the treaty is really more symbolic than it has really something is of practical use. But that, uh, you know, it would do no harm if all the nuclear powers signed that treaty clearly.
Dr. Yen, what is your understanding of the importance of such a treaty? Of course, I know you come from South China Sea Institute, but in terms of uh, regional collective security, is that really an issue of symbolic importance or is the region really committed to having such a protocol into place? Yes, it's indeed very important, the Bangkok Treaty. We do see that in recent years, we see the many, many multilateral uh, mechanisms like the Quad, like the uh, the AUKUS, already bring uh, concerns to the ASEAN countries. For example, like the ASEAN countries recently, uh, well, for the past two years, they expressed their concerns of uh, a nuclear arms race and arms force uh, more involvement of the extra-regional countries in the region. Therefore, in such a background, I think, the uh, denuclearization is much more important than like 10 years before. And China has been supportive of the Bangkok Treaty for many years. And I think uh, that is the way for China to show its genuine desire to maintain stability and peace in the region. All right, let's focus on what China said, um, what China's senior diplomat said during the meeting, some of the state, statements that China made. For instance, Wang Yi said that China has reached a consensus with Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Myanmar, Laos and Cambodia on building a community with a shared future. Professor A, from regional countries' perspective, what specific implications will such a status carry for these countries? What do they understand? Well, I think uh, from the Southeast Asian perspective, uh, prospering together or prosperity for the region would be of uh, utmost uh, importance. We welcome more investment from China. We welcome more trade uh, with China. ASEAN's uh, trade volume with uh, China is already very sizable. I think it's probably the largest uh, in the world. So how could we further upgrade this sort of uh, trade? For example, should we uh, nowadays place more focus, more emphasis on uh, trade in services in addition uh, to uh, trade in goods? Uh, and uh, if we are talking about trade in uh, services, then we will be talking about freedom of uh, movement, among uh, all the ASEAN countries and together with uh, China. So I have been uh, long calling for, uh, for example, visa-free travel between China and most countries of uh, Southeast Asia. I think that is a concrete step that we could take and a very solid first step. Mm. Mr. New, let me go to you for the Chinese perspective. Indeed, China and ASEAN are each other's largest trading partner for the past three years followed. Um, China is number one for ASEAN, for instance, followed by the US, EU, and then Japan. And this year, bilateral trade is expected to exceed one trillion US dollars. That's after the volume jumped by 15% last year over the previous year. And China is in talks with ASEAN on version 3.0 of a free trade area. So how important are they for each other in terms of uh, economic prosperity and how big is the potential? As you said, the potential is uh, huge. Uh, especially these two sides have established the mechanism to strengthen this economic tie. Like FTA has been updated twice, and this, this, the third version of the FTP uh, will focus on the more broad economic cooperation agenda. Uh, like uh, our colleague from Southeast Asia has mentioned, the service trade will be one of the priorities. And also, 
both sides will focus on the cooperation on the digital economy, interconnectivity, the green economy. More things will be put on the table. More resources will be there. And I think also people-to-people interaction will be there. So do, there do you think, well, well, on Thursday, the foreign ministers from China, Japan and ROK met with their counterparts from ASEAN. And uh, Mr. Wang Yi actually called for an increase in commercial flights between countries in the region and an orderly resumption of inbound tourism. Does that mean there may be some openings in terms of uh, visa issuance, at least following the disruption that we've seen over the COVID years? Yes. There are many restrictions are still there after the pandemic. So uh, we, we should do a lot of concrete works on the issues like the visa and more planes traveling to Tubei uh, and also to quicken and strengthen the uh, recovery of the post-pandemic economy. We have to make people more willing to travel, could there especially be, for yeah, Could there be an arrangement for free visa arrangement among ASEAN, including China, in the near future? Is that ever possible? I hope so. There is a strong demand from the business sector mm. uh, and also the willingness of the people to travel more conveniently so for the vacations and, and, and so on, so holidays. I think China and ASEAN countries should take the first steps and to uh, make the Japan and Korea to follow these uh, scenes. Hmm. Let's keep a watch on the situation, but let's now move on to something more contentious in a geopolitical sense. South China Sea, of course, that's what I mean. The countries, I mean China and ASEAN, agreed this week on guidelines to accelerate the completion of the Code of Conduct, or COC, for the South China Sea. Uh, Dr. Yang Yang, you're an expert in that regard. Are the ASEAN progressing towards reaching an, a, a consensus on how to conduct themselves and how far are we from the conclusion of the talks? Well, actually, I think uh, yesterday and today we do have uh, see this very encouraging news that the COC negotiation has already finished the second reading. And I think this is a very important uh, news to see because our last milestone was in back in 2018, when the SDNT, single draft of negotiating path was reached. I think it is both China and ASEAN's um, common desire to reach the COC, to finalize the COC uh, in an early date, because it is the regional rules that we established, China and ASEAN, we both established by our own for regional peace and without extra regional countries' involvement. So this is very important. And I do feel that uh, after the pandemic, everything's back to the right track. And currently we have four working group meetings every year. And I really look forward to a future very close conclusion of the COC. Professor Lara's U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Daniel Crittenbrink said before Secretary Blinken traveled to Jakarta that uh, we have seen an upward trend of unhelpful and coercive and irresponsible Chinese actions in the South China Sea. Given the kind of uh, progress or steps taken by China and ASEAN in terms of uh, accelerating their work with the Code of Conduct, do you think the U.S. position is instrumental really on helping countries in the region to be on the same page? 
Well, China and the United States see the South China problem from very different angles, while, as you uh, just quoted, while the United States accuses the Chinese of acting aggressively, the Chinese accuse the United States of doing exactly that and interfering in something where they shouldn't be interfering. The progress in the conduct, uh, the guidelines for the South China Sea between China and ASEAN has to be welcomed. Whether it will be finalized, we don't know. It was meant to be finalized last year. We are still negotiating, but there is hope that some sort of code of conduct can be finalized maybe this year. However, it also is the case that there are overlapping claims between China and four other uh, Asian countries about uh, islands, barriers and reefs in the, reefs in the uh, South China Sea. Whether the code of conduct can overcome these overlapping and very contentious claims, that must be seen. I think in the end, it will not be the guidelines on paper, but how that will be implemented in practice. That will really help us to see whether peace and stability can return to the South China Sea. Dr. Yen, do you have a response for Mr. Laris's concern that whether, even if completed, the CLC can help calm down or resolve the differences between China and some of its neighbors concerning the disputed island and, uh, and structures? Well, actually, uh, first of all, and very important, I think we all need to be aware that the COC is not a mechanism to solve the dispute. However, it is, uh, I think it's a mechanism to uh, manage the dispute. So I do uh, agree to a certain level of uh, Professor Laris that the, the COC is, uh, to some extent, is a do's and don'ts of regional states. Therefore, I think when the uh, COC is reached, maybe in the ne very near future, uh, that the regional states can know how to do and how to behave ourselves uh, to guarantee peace and stability in the region. What about the disputes that are still standing in the way, Dr. Yen? What is China's um, approach or vision of resolving these differences? I think China's uh, claim in the South China Sea, as well as uh, uh, China's policy of how to resolve it, is uh, very consistent. Uh, we, we do think that uh, the resolvement, the final settlement of the dispute needs to be between the claimant states and also through diplomatic methods. And uh, I do not see uh, the settlement could be happening in the very near future. I think it just takes time because the South China Sea dispute is the most complicated maritime dispute in the whole world, involving five countries, involving more than 200 features in the ocean. So it's very extremely and highly controversial issue. Mm -hmm. But I do think that with the COC uh, negotiation and also with the maritime cooperation projects, many of the projects are ongoing and with many uh, of the low-hanging food and also with the uh, China-ASEAN series of meetings, both uh, multilateral one and bilateral one, I think that we can work together to guarantee peace and stability before the settlement of the final dispute. Well, last month, uh, the U.S., Japan and the Philippines conducted drills near the South China Sea. And this week, during ASEAN's foreign minister's meeting, Japanese Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, Yoshimasa Yahashi said, our region and the world are facing various challenges such as Russia's aggression against Ukraine, unilateral attempts to change the status quo by force or coercion in the East and South China Seas. Professor A., do you perceive that Japan is involving itself more in the security affairs in the region and uh, where they shouldn't really be in China's perspective? Well, Japan, uh, I think since uh, at least uh, a decade ago, 
has been uh, trying to so-called renormalize uh, itself, or at least from its uh, perspective, and that would imply that uh, Japan would take a more proactive stance when it comes to uh, regional uh, security matters. We do see uh, more Japanese involvement in uh, security and defense matters, especially in security and defense cooperations uh, with uh, a number of uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries. Previously, some of these uh, collaborative uh, efforts were undertaken by the United States, but it would appear that uh, nowadays uh, Japan, number one, it's uh, also taking part in some of these collaborative efforts, and perhaps there's some degree of coordination between Japan and the United States uh, when it comes to uh, regional security collaboration. Is that welcome? I mean, does that make common security more inside for countries in, in ASEAN? Well, I think it's uh, like this. Uh, a lot of uh, Southeast Asian countries, uh, even though they have been growing spectacularly in terms of their economies. They have uh, perhaps uh, long neglected uh, defense uh, or security requirements. So when Japan comes knocking, sometimes uh, with uh, projects, sometimes with uh, resources, and uh, if these resources or projects are affordable, I think some of these uh, ASEAN countries would be quite tempted to undertake them. Let's take a look at uh, uh, another development between China and the United States. As I said, Mr. Wang Yi met with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken for the second time in a month. Now, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China posted this picture. Uh, basically, Wang Yi is saying that uh, as major countries with important influence, China and the U.S. should respect the efforts of regional countries, support ASEAN centrality, and avoid bringing disputes and complex factors into regional cooperation. And this is the picture I meant, uh, you know, showing both sides, um, engaging with each other, talking to each other, Mr. Blinken, uh, showing the way forward in China, you know, Mr. Wang looking at Mr. Blinken. Um, given the kind of uh, tension and awkwardness between the two countries over the recent years, Mr. Niu, let me go to you. What is your take of the use of this picture by China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs? What kind of tone is the, the picture and the reportage? I think this is a very positive signal for the bilateral relationship. Uh, this is the second meeting of the two diplo top diplomats from both sides, and it signaled that uh, uh, China-U.S. senior officials' interaction and dialogue is strengthening. And also, uh, I think they are talking a, lot, talking a lot about the regional issue beyond the bilateral relations. Uh, this is also quite important for both countries to support uh, a more active role of the ASEAN in the regional affairs. And, uh, and third, I think this is also important for the uh, U.S.-China relationship in the next steps, uh, especially uh, there are some substantial issues to be resolved, like to revise the guiding principles uh, of the two countries to, to, to make the a competition may be more uh, constructive uh, in a more constructive way and also to broaden the dialogue channels uh, from the economic diplomatic side to the security and defense sector. So there are still a lot of works to do. So I think this meeting uh, is, 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 um, is, is, is highly needed mm. uh, for the 
countries and the world. Yeah. Professor Laras, on the same day, though, uh, a U.S. Navy plane flew over the Taiwan Strait. Um, which signal should people take? Are they talking or are they uh, flexing muscles at the same time? Oh, they, this is the picture of today that people have to understand. Well, the United States views the Taiwan Straits as international waters, so they are fully entitled to fly uh, planes over international waters. That would be the American response to that. But I would like to uh, also uh, um, uh, say that I believe both sides, both China and the United States at the moment are in the process of trying to improve the, the bilateral relationship. Both sides have recognized that uh, it's a dead end street to just uh, criticize each other, to fight trade wars, to fight other uh, uh, words of uh, war, uh, wars of words, that that uh, doesn't lead to anything. So I think both sides are engaging right now. You mentioned Blinken's second uh, visit, uh, um, uh, second meeting with Wang Li. Then we had Yellen, the Treasury Secretary in Beijing recently. Then the new Chinese ambassador to Washington was received at the Pentagon. John Kerry is coming next week to Beijing. These are all good signs. Of course, the meetings, the talks need to lead to something. But, of, but without talking first, you will never have meetings. So I think we can be hopeful that the relationship will gradually get better. But I have to say, new restrictions are coming. The United States is imposing new uh, technological restrictions on China about uh, defense uh, equipment, about uh, artificial intelligence, about chip uh, 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 chips which are not being able to be delivered to China. That will also increase the tension between the two sides. Mm. But let's hope that the talking we have seen recently, that that will be able to overcome the renewed tension, which will, uh, we will also see in the near future. Mm. Dr. Yen, very briefly, you have 20 seconds in terms of uh, South China Sea, as China and the United States step up their engagement, at least for the time being. What do you foresee in the near future in terms of uh, the temperature of the waters there, if you know what I'm talking about? I do think that the United States, first of all, need to be really aware that it's not a climate state of the South China Sea dispute, neither does it as a, a, a climate state of the, uh, in the East China Sea. But I think that the most important thing talking about maritime affairs between China and the United States is still how to avoid miscalculation and misperception okay. when it comes to a close encounter. All right. Yes. To okay. avoid the tragic incident. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to my guests, uh, Dr. Yang Yang, uh, Klaus Laras, Niu Haibing, and uh, A. Sung Oh. Thank you for your insights. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. I'll be away for two weeks of holidays. See you when I'm back. Meanwhile, you've got The Point and have a good time. <laughs>